Phase the Fifth The Woman Pays Part One This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty five Her narrative ended. Even its reassertions and secondary explanations were done. Tessa's voice throughout had hardly risen higher than its opening tone. There had been no exculpatory phrase of any kind, and she had not wept. But the complexion even of external things seemed to suffer transmutation as her announcement progressed. The fire in the grate looked impish, demoniacally funny, as if it did not care in the least about her strait. The fender grinned idly, as if it too did not care. The light from the water-bottle was merely engaged in a chromatic problem. All material objects around announced their irresponsibility with terrible iteration. And yet nothing had changed since the moments when he had been kissing her, or, rather, nothing in the substance of things, but the essence of things had changed. When she ceased, the auricular impressions from their previous endearments seemed to hustle away into the corner of their brains, repeating themselves as echoes from a time of supremely purblind foolishness. Claire performed the irrelevant act of stirring the fire. The intelligence had not even yet got to the bottom of him. After stirring the embers, he rose to his feet. All the force of her disclosure had imparted itself now. His face had withered. In the strenuousness of his concentration he treadled fitfully on the floor. He could not by any contrivance think closely enough. That was the meaning of his vague movement. When he spoke it was in the most inadequate commonplace voice of the many varied tones she had heard from him. "'Tess! Yes, dearest. Am I to believe this? From your manner I am to take it as true.' oh you cannot be out of your mind you ought to be yet you are not my wife my tess nothing in you warrants such a supposition as that i am not out of my mind she said and yet he looked vacantly at her to resume with dazed senses why didn't you tell me before ah yes you would have told me in a way but I hindered you, I remember." These and other of his words were nothing but the perfunctory babble of the surface, while the depths remained paralyzed. He turned away and bent over a chair. Tess followed him to the middle of the room where he was, and stood there staring at him with eyes that did not weep. Presently she slid down upon her knees beside his foot, and from this position she crouched in a heap. "'In the name of our love, forgive me,' she whispered with a dry mouth. "'I have forgiven you for the same.' And, as he did not answer, she said again, "'Forgive me as you are forgiven. I forgive you, angel.' "'You—yes, you do. But you do not forgive me.' "'Oh, Tess!' Forgiveness does not apply to the case. You were one person, now you are another. My God, how can forgiveness meet such a grotesque prestidigitation as that? He paused, contemplating this definition, then suddenly broke into horrible laughter, 
as unnatural and ghastly as a laugh in hell. "'Don't! Don't! It kills me quite, that!' she shrieked. "'Oh, have mercy upon me! Have mercy!' He did not answer, and, sickly white, she jumped up. "'Angel, what do you mean by that laugh?' she cried out. "'Do you know what this is to me?' He shook his head. "'I have been hoping, longing, praying to make you happy. I have thought what joy it will be to do it, what an unworthy wife I shall be if I do not. That's what I have felt, Angel. I know that. I thought, Angel, that you loved me, me, my very self. If it is I you do love, oh, how can it be that you look and speak so? It frightens me. Having begun to love you, I love you for ever, in all changes, in all disgraces, because you are yourself. I ask no more. Then how can you, oh, my own husband, stop loving me? I repeat, the woman I have been loving is not you. But who? Another woman in your shape. She perceived in his words the realization of her own apprehensive foreboding in former times. He looked upon her as a species of impostor, a guilty woman in the guise of an innocent one. Terror was upon her white face as she saw it. Her cheek was flaccid, and her mouth had almost the aspect of a round little hole. The horrible sense of his view of her so deadened her that she staggered, and he stepped forward, thinking she was going to fall. "'Sit down,' he said gently. "'You are ill, and it is natural that you should be.' She did sit down, without knowing where she was, that strained look still upon her face, and her eyes such as to make his flesh creep. "'I don't belong to you any more, then, do I, angel?' she asked, helplessly. "'It is not me, but another woman like me, that he loved,' he says. The image raised caused her to take pity upon herself, as one who was ill-used. Her eyes filled as she regarded her position further. She turned round, and burst into a flood of self-sympathetic tears. Claire was relieved at this change, for the effect on her of what had happened was beginning to be a trouble to him, only less than the woe of the disclosure itself. He waited patiently, apathetically, till the violence of her grief had worn itself out, and her rush of weeping had lessened to a catching gasp at intervals. "'Angel!' she said suddenly, in her natural tones, the insane dry voice of terror having left her now. "'Angel, am I too wicked for you and me to live together? I have not been able to think what we can do. I shan't ask you to let me live with you, Angel, because I have no right to. I shall not write to mother and sisters to say we be married, as I said I would do and I shan't finish the good hussif I cut out and meant to make while we were in lodgings. Shan't you? No, I shan't do anything unless you order me to. And if you go away from me, I shall not follow ye. 
and if you never speak to me any more i shall not ask why unless you tell me i may and if i order you to do anything i will obey you like your wretched slave even if it is to lie down and die you are very good but it strikes me that there is a want of harmony between your present mood of self-sacrifice and your past mood of self-preservation these were the first words of antagonism to fling elaborate sarcasms at tess however was much like flinging them at a dog or cat the charms of their subtlety passed by her unappreciated and she only received them as inimical sounds which meant that anger ruled she remained mute not knowing that he was smothering his affection for her she hardly observed that a tear descended slowly upon his cheek a tear so large that it magnified the pores of the skin over which it rolled like the object lens of a microscope meanwhile re-illumination as to the terrible and total change that her confession had wrought in his life in his universe returned to him and he tried desperately to advance among the new conditions in which he stood some subsequent action was necessary yet what tess he said as gently as he could speak i cannot stay in this room just now i will walk out a little way he quietly left the room and the two glasses of wine that he had poured out for their supper one for her one for him remained on the table untasted this was what their agape had come to at tea two or three hours earlier they had in the freakishness of affection drunk from one cup the closing of the door behind him gently as it had been pulled to roused tess from her stupor he was gone she could not stay hastily flinging her cloak around her she opened the door and followed putting out the candles as if she were never coming back the rain was over and the night was now clear she was soon close at his heels for claire walked slowly and without purpose his form beside her light gray figure looked black sinister and forbidding and she felt as sarcasm the touch of the jewels of which she had been momentarily so proud claire turned at hearing her footsteps but his recognition of her presence seemed to make no difference to him and he went on over the five yawning arches of the great bridge in front of the house the cow and horse tracks in the road were full of water the rain having been enough to charge them but not enough to wash them away across these minute pools the reflected stars flitted in a quick transit as she passed she would not have known they were shining overhead if she had not seen them there the vastest things of the universe imaged in objects so mean the place to which they had travelled to-day was in the same valley as the talbothes but some miles lower down the river and the surroundings being open she kept easily in sight of him away from the house the road wound through the meads and along these she followed claire without any attempt to come up with him or to attract him but with dumb and vacant fidelity at last however her listless walk brought her up alongside him and still he said nothing the cruelty of fooled honesty is often great after enlightenment and it was mighty in claire now 
the outdoor air had apparently taken away from him all tendency to act on impulse she knew that he saw her without irradiation in all her bareness that time was chanting his satiric psalm at her then behold when thy face is made bare he that loved thee shall hate thy face shall be no more fair at the fall of thy fate for thy life shall fall as a leaf and be shed as the rain and the veil of thine head shall be grief and the crown shall be pain he was still intently thinking and her companionship had now insufficient power to break or divert the strain of thought what a weak thing her presence must have become to him she could not help addressing claire what have i done what have i done i have not told of anything that interferes with or belies my love for you you don't think i planned it do you it is in your own mind what you are angry at angel it is not in me oh it is not in me and i am not that deceitful woman you think me well not deceitful my wife but not the same no not the same but do not make me reproach you i have sworn that i will not and i will do everything to avoid it but she went on pleading in her distraction and perhaps said things that would have been better left to silence angel angel i was a child a child when it happened i knew nothing of men you were more sinned against than sinning that i admit then will you not forgive me i do forgive you but forgiveness is not all and love me to this question he did not answer oh angel my mother says that it sometimes happens so she knows several cases where they were worse than i and the husband has not minded it much has got over it at least and yet the woman had not loved him as i do you don't tass don't argue different societies different manners you almost make me say you are an unapprehending peasant woman who have never been initiated into the proportions of social things you don't know what you say i am only a peasant by position not by nature she spoke with an impulse to anger but it went as it came so much the worse for you i think that parson who unearthed your pedigree would have done better if he had held his tongue i cannot help associating your decline as a family with this other fact of your want of firmness decrepit families imply decrepit wills decrepit conduct heaven why did you give me a handle for despising you more by informing me of your descent here was i thinking you a new-sprung child of nature and there were you the belated seedling of an effete aristocracy lots of families are as bad as mine in that ratty's family were once large landowners and so were dairyman billets and the debby houses who are now carters were once the de bayeux family you'll find such as i everywhere tis a feature of our county and i can't help it so much the worse for the county she took these reproaches in their bulk simply not in their particulars 
he did not love her as he had loved her hitherto and to all else she was indifferent they wandered on again in silence it was said afterwards that a cottager of wellbridge who went out late that night for a doctor met two lovers in the pastures walking very slowly without converse one behind the other as in a funeral procession and the glimpse that he obtained of their faces seemed to denote that they were anxious and sad returning later he passed them again in the same field progressing just as slowly and as regardless of the hour and of the cheerless night as before it was only on account of his preoccupation with his own affairs and the illness in his house that he did not bear in mind the curious incident which however he recalled a long while after during the interval of the cottagers going and coming she had said to her husband i don't see how i can help being the cause of much misery to you all your life the river is down there i can put an end to myself in it i am not afraid i don't wish to add murder to my other follies he said i will leave something to show that i did it myself on account of my shame they will not blame you then don't speak so absurdly i wish not to hear it it is nonsense to have such thoughts in this kind of case which is rather one for satirical laughter than for tragedy you don't in the least understand the quality of the mishap it would be viewed in the light of a joke by nine-tenths of the world if it were known please oblige me by returning to the house and going to bed i will said she dutifully they had rambled round by a road which led to the well-known ruins of the cistercian abbey behind the mill the latter having in centuries past been attached to the monastic establishment the mill still worked on food being a perennial necessity the abbey had perished creeds being transient one continually sees the ministration of the temporary outlasting the ministration of the eternal their walk having been circuitous they were still not far from the house and in obeying his direction she only had to reach the large stone bridge across the main river and follow the road for a few yards when she got back everything remained as she had left it the fire being still burning she did not stay downstairs for more than a minute but proceeded to her chamber whither the luggage had been taken here she sat down on the edge of the bed looking blankly around and presently began to undress in removing the light towards the bedstead its rays fell upon the tester of white dimity something was hanging beneath it and she lifted the candle to see what it was a bough of mistletoe angel had put it there she knew that in an instant this was the explanation of that mysterious parcel which it had been so difficult to pack and bring whose contents he would not explain to her saying that time would soon show her the purpose thereof in his zest and his gaiety he had hung it there how foolish and inopportune that mistletoe looked now having nothing more to fear having scarce anything to hope for that he would relent there seemed no promise whatever she lay down dully when sorrow ceases to be speculative sleep sees her opportunity among so many happier moods which forbid repose this was a mood which welcomed it and in a few minutes the lonely tess forgot existence 
surrounded by the aromatic stillness of the chamber that had once, possibly, been the bride-chamber of her own ancestry. Later on that night Clare also retraced his steps to the house. Entering softly to the sitting-room, he obtained a light, and with the manner of one who had considered his course, he spread his rugs upon the old horsehair sofa which stood there, and roughly shaped it into a sleeping-couch. Before lying down he crept shoeless upstairs, and listened at the door of her apartment. Her measured breathing told that she was sleeping profoundly. "'Thank God!' murmured Clare, and yet he was conscious of a pang of bitterness at the thought, approximately true, though not wholly so, that, having shifted the burden of her life to his shoulders, she was now reposing without care. He turned away to descend, then, irresolute, faced round to her door again. In the act he caught sight of one of the d'Urberville dames, whose portrait was immediately over the entrance to Tessa's bedchamber. In the candlelight the painting was more than unpleasant. Sinister design lurked in the woman's features, a concentrated purpose of revenge on the other sex. So it seemed to him then. The Caroline bodice of the portrait was low, precisely as Tessa's had been when he tucked it in to show the necklace, and again he experienced the distressing sensation of a resemblance between them. The check was sufficient. He resumed his retreat and descended. His air remained calm and cold, his small, compressed mouth indexing his powers of self-control, his face wearing still that terrible, sterile expression which had spread thereon since her disclosure. It was the face of a man who was no longer passion's slave, yet who found no advantage in his enfranchisement. He was simply regarding the harrowing contingencies of human experience, the unexpectedness of things. Nothing so pure, so sweet, so virginal as Tess had seemed possible all the long while that he had adored her, up to an hour ago. But the little less, and what worlds away! He argued erroneously when he said to himself that her heart was not indexed in the honest freshness of her face. But Tess had no advocate to set him right. Could it be possible, he continued, that eyes which, as they gazed, never expressed any divergence from what the tongue was telling, were yet ever seeing another world behind her ostensible one, discordant and contrasting. He reclined on his couch in the sitting-room and extinguished the light. The night came in, and took up its place there, unconcerned and indifferent. The night which had already swallowed up his happiness and was now digesting it listlessly, and was ready to swallow up the happiness of a thousand other people, with as little disturbance or change of mien. CHAPTER Thirty Six. Clare arose in the light of a dawn that was ashy and furtive, as though associated with crime. The fireplace confronted him with its extinct embers, the spread supper-table, whereon stood the two full glasses of untasted wine, now flat and filmy her vacated seat and his own, the other articles of furniture, with their eternal look of not being able to help it, their intolerable inquiry what was to be done. From above there was no sound, but in a few minutes there came a knock at the door. He remembered that it would be the neighboring cottager's wife, who was to minister to their wants while they remained here. 
the presence of a third person in the house would be extremely awkward just now and being already dressed he opened the window and informed her that they could manage to shift for themselves that morning she had a milk-can in her hand which he told her to leave at the door when the dame had gone away he searched in the back quarters of the house for fuel and speedily lit a fire there was plenty of eggs butter bread and so on in the larder and Clare soon had breakfast laid, his experiences at the dairy having rendered him facile in domestic preparations. The smoke of the kindled wood rose from the chimney without like a lotus-headed column. Local people who were passing by saw it, and thought of the newly married couple, and envied their happiness. Angel cast a final glance round, and then, going to the foot of the stairs, called in a conventional voice, "'Breakfast is ready.' He opened the front door, and took a few steps in the morning air. When, after a short space, he came back, she was already in the sitting-room, mechanically readjusting the breakfast things. As she was fully attired, and the interval since his calling her had been but two or three minutes, she must have been dressed, or nearly so, before he went to summon her. Her hair was twisted up in a large round mass at the back of her head, and she had put on one of the new frocks a pale blue woollen garment with neck frillings of white her hands and face appeared to be cold and she had possibly been sitting dressed in the bedroom a long time without any fire the marked civility of clare's tone in calling her seemed to have inspired her for the moment with a new glimmer of hope but it soon died when she looked at him the pair were in truth but the ashes of their former fires to the hot sorrow of the previous night had succeeded heaviness. It seemed as if nothing could kindle either of them to fervor of sensation any more. He spoke gently to her, and she replied with a like undemonstrativeness. At last she came up to him, looking in his sharply defined face, as one who had no consciousness that her own formed a visible object also. "'Angel,' she said, and paused touching him with her fingers lightly as a breeze as though she could hardly believe to be there in the flesh the man who was once her lover her eyes were bright her pale cheek still showed its wonted roundness though half-dried tears had left glistening traces thereon and the usually ripe red mouth was almost as pale as her cheek throbbingly alive as she was still under the stress of her mental grief the life beat so brokenly that a little further pull upon it would cause real illness, dull her characteristic eyes, and make her mouth thin. She looked absolutely pure. Nature, in her fantastic trickery, had set such a seal of maidenhood upon Tess's countenance that he gazed at her with a stupefied air. "'Tess, say it is not true. No, it is not true. It is true.' every word every word he looked at her imploringly as if he would willingly have taken a lie from her lips knowing it to be one and have made of it by some sort of sophistry a valid denial however she only repeated it is true is he living angel then asked the baby died but the man he is alive a last despair passed over clare's face is he in england yes 
he took a few vague steps. "'My position is this,' he said abruptly. "'I thought, any man would have thought, that by giving up all ambition to win a wife with social standing, with fortune, with knowledge of the world, I would secure rustic innocence as surely as I should secure pink cheeks. But, however, I am no man to reproach you, and I will not. Tess felt his position so entirely that the remainder had not been needed. Therein lay just the distress of it. She saw that he had lost all round. Angel, I should not have let it go on to marriage with you if I had known that, after all, there was a last way out of it for you, though I hoped you would never. Her voice grew husky. A last way? I mean, to get rid of me. You can get rid of me. How? By divorcing me. Good heavens! How can you be so simple? How can I divorce you? Can't you, now I have told you? I thought my confession would give you grounds for that. Oh, Tess, you are too—too too childish, unformed, crude, I suppose. I don't know what you are. You don't understand the law. You don't understand. What? You cannot? Indeed I cannot. A quick shame mixed with the misery upon his listener's face. I thought— she whispered. Oh, now I see how wicked I seem to you. Believe me, on my soul, I never thought but that you could. I hoped you would not, yet I believed, without a doubt, that you could cast me off if you were determined and didn't love me at, at, at all. You were mistaken, he said. Oh, then I ought to have done it to have done it last night, but I didn't have the courage, and it's just like me. The courage to do what? As she did not answer, he took her by the hand. What were you thinking of doing? he inquired. Of putting an end to myself. When? She writhed under this inquisitorial manner of his. Last night, she answered. Where? Under your mistletoe. My good! How? he asked sternly. I'll tell you if you won't be angry with me, she said, shrinking. It was with the cord of my box. But I could not do the last thing. I was afraid that it might cause a scandal to your name. The unexpected quality of this confession, wrung from her and not volunteered, shook him perceptibly. But he still held her, and letting his glance fall from her face downwards, he said, Now, listen to this. You must not dare to think of such a horrible thing. How could you? You will promise me as your husband to attempt that no more. I am ready to promise. I saw how wicked it was. Wicked! The idea was unworthy of you beyond description. But, Angel, she pleaded, enlarging her eyes in calm unconcern upon him, 
it was thought of entirely on your account to set you free without the scandal that i thought you would have to get i should never have dreamt of doing it on mine however to do it with my own hand is too good for me after all it is you my ruined husband who ought to strike the blow i think i should love you more if that were possible if you could bring yourself to do it since there's no other way of escape for ye i feel i am so utterly worthless so very greatly in the way Shh. well since you say no i won't i have no wish opposed to yours he knew this to be true enough since the desperation of the night her activities had dropped to zero and there was no further rashness to be feared tess tried to busy herself again over the breakfast-table with more or less success and they sat down both on the same side so that their glances did not meet there was at first something awkward in hearing each other eat and drink but this could not be escaped moreover the amount of eating done was small on both sides breakfast over he rose and telling her the hour at which he might be expected to dinner went off to the miller's in a mechanical pursuance of the plan of studying that business which had been his only practical reason for coming here when he was gone tess stood at the window and presently saw his form crossing the great stone bridge which conducted to the mill premises he sank behind it crossed the railway beyond and disappeared then without a sigh she turned her attention to the room and began clearing the table and setting it in order the charwoman soon came her presence was at first a strain upon tess but afterwards an alleviation at half-past twelve she left her assistant alone in the kitchen and returning to the sitting-room waited for the reappearance of angel's form behind the bridge about one he showed himself her face flushed although he was a quarter of a mile off she ran to the kitchen to get the dinner served by the time he should enter he went first to the room where they had washed their hands together the day before and as he entered the sitting-room the dish-covers rose from the dishes as if by his own motion how punctual he said yes i saw you coming over the bridge said she the meal was passed in commonplace talk of what he had been doing during the morning at the abbey mill of the methods of bolting and the old-fashioned machinery which he feared would not enlighten him greatly on modern improved methods some of it seeming to have been in use ever since the days it ground for the monks in the adjoining conventual buildings now a heap of ruins he left the house again in the course of an hour coming home at dusk and occupying himself through the evening with his papers she feared she was in the way and when the old woman was gone retired to the kitchen where she made herself busy as well as she could for more than an hour clare's shape appeared at the door you must not work like this he said you are not my servant you are my wife she raised her eyes and brightened somewhat i may think myself that indeed she murmured in piteous raillery you mean in name well i don't want to be anything more you may think so tess you are what do you mean i don't know she said hastily with tears in her accents i thought i 
because I am not respectable, I mean. I told you I thought I was not respectable enough long ago, and on that account I didn't want to marry you. Only, only you urged me. She broke into sobs and turned her back to him. It would almost have won round any man but Angel Clare. Within the remote depths of his constitution, so gentle and affectionate as he was in general, there lay hidden a hard logical deposit, like a vein of metal in a soft loam, which turned the edge of everything that attempted to traverse it. It had blocked his acceptance of the church, it blocked his acceptance of Tess. Moreover, his affection itself was less fire than radiance, and with regard to the other sex, when he ceased to believe, he ceased to follow. Contrasting in this with many impressionable natures who remain sensuously infatuated with what they intellectually despise. He waited till her sobbing ceased. I wish half the women in England were as respectable as you, he said, in an ebullition of bitterness against womankind in general. It isn't a question of respectability, but one of principle. He spoke such things as these and more of a kindred sort to her, being still swayed by the antipathetic wave which warps direct souls with such persistence when once their vision finds itself mocked by appearances. There was, it is true, underneath a back-current of sympathy through which a woman of the world might have conquered him. But Tess did not think of this. She took everything as her deserts, and hardly opened her mouth. The firmness of her devotion to him was indeed almost pitiful. Quick-tempered as she naturally was, nothing that he could say made her unseemly. She sought not her own, was not provoked, thought no evil of his treatment of her. She might just now have been apostolic charity herself, returned to a self-seeking modern world. This evening, night, and morning were passed precisely as the preceding ones had been passed. On one, and only one, occasion did she, the formerly free and independent Tess, venture to make any advances. It was on the third occasion of his starting after a meal to go out to the flour-mill. As he was leaving the table, he said, Good-bye, and she replied in the same words, at the same time inclining her mouth in the way of his. He did not avail himself of the invitation, saying, as he turned hastily aside, I shall be home punctually. Tess shrank into herself as if she had been struck. Often enough had he tried to reach those lips against her consent. Often had he said gaily that her mouth and breath tasted of the butter and eggs and milk and honey on which she mainly lived, that he drew sustenance from them, and other follies of that sort. But he did not care for them now. He observed her sudden shrinking, and said, gently, You know, I have to think of a course. It was imperative that we should stay together a little while to avoid the scandal to you that would have resulted from our immediate parting. But you must see it is only for form's sake. Yes, said Tess absently. He went out, and on his way to the mill stood still, and wished for a moment that he had responded yet more kindly and kissed her once at least. Thus they lived through this despairing day or two, in the same house truly, 
but more widely apart than before they were lovers. It was evident to her that he was, as he had said, living with paralyzed activities in his endeavor to think of a plan of procedure. She was awe-stricken to discover such determination under such apparent flexibility. His consistency was indeed too cruel. She no longer expected forgiveness now. More than once she had thought of going away from him during his absence at the mill, but she feared that this, instead of benefiting him, might be the means of hampering and humiliating him yet more if it should have become known. Meanwhile Clare was meditating, verily. His thought had been unsuspended. He was becoming ill with thinking, eaten out with thinking, withered by thinking, scourged out of all his former pulsating, flexuous domesticity. He walked about, saying to himself, "'What's to be done? What's to be done?' and by chance she overheard him. It caused her to break the reserve about their future which had hitherto prevailed. "'I suppose you are not going to live with me long, are you, angel?' she asked, the sunk corners of her mouth betraying how purely mechanical were the means by which she retained that expression of chastened calm upon her face. "'I cannot,' he said, "'without despising myself.' and what is worse, perhaps, despising you? I mean, of course, cannot live with you in the ordinary sense. At present, whatever I feel, I do not despise you. And let me speak plainly, or you may not see all my difficulties. How can we live together while that man lives, he being your husband in nature, and not I? If he were dead, it might be different." Besides, that's not all the difficulty. It lies in another consideration, one bearing upon the future of other people than ourselves. Think of years to come, and children being born to us, and this past matter getting known, for it must get known. There is not an uttermost part of the earth, but somebody comes from it or goes to it from elsewhere. Well, think of wretches of our flesh and blood, growing up under a taunt which they will gradually get to feel the full force of with their expanding years. What an awakening for them! What a prospect! Can you honestly say remain after contemplating this contingency? Don't you think we had better endure the ills we have than fly to others? Her eyelids, weighted with trouble, continued drooping as before. I cannot say remain, she answered. I cannot. I had no thought so far. Tess's feminine hope, shall we confess it, had been so obstinately recuperative as to revive in her surreptitious visions of a domiciliary intimacy continued long enough to break down his coldness even against his judgment. Though unsophisticated in the usual sense, she was not incomplete and it would have denoted deficiency of womanhood if she had not instinctively known what an argument lies in propinquity. Nothing else would serve her, she knew, if this failed. It was wrong to hope in what was of the nature of strategy, she said to herself, yet that sort of hope she could not extinguish. His last representation had now been made, and it was, as she said, a new view. She had truly never thought so far as that, 
and his lucid picture of possible offspring who would scorn her was one that brought deadly convictions to an honest heart which was humanitarian to its centre sheer experience had already taught her that in some circumstances there was one thing better than to lead a good life and that was to be saved from leading any life whatever like all who had been previsioned by suffering she could in the words of monsieur sully prudhomme hear a penal sentence in the fiat you shall be born particularly if addressed to potential issue of hers yet such is the vulpine slyness of dame nature that till now tess had been hoodwinked by her love for claire into forgetting it might result in vitalizations that would inflict upon others what she had bewailed as misfortune to herself she therefore could not withstand his argument but with the self-combating proclivity of the supersensitive an answer thereto arose in claire's own mind and he almost feared it it was based on her exceptional physical nature and she might have used it promisingly she might have added besides on an australian upland or texan plain who is to know or care about my misfortunes or to reproach me or you yet like the majority of women she accepted the momentary presentment as if it were the inevitable and she may have been right the intuitive heart of woman knoweth not only its own bitterness but its husband's and even if these assumed reproaches were not likely to be addressed to him or to his by strangers they might have reached his ears from his own fastidious brain it was the third day of the estrangement some might risk the odd paradox that with more animalism he would have been the nobler man we do not say it yet claire's love was doubtless ethereal to a fault imaginative to impracticability with these natures corporal presence is something less appealing than corporal absence the latter creating an ideal presence that conveniently drops the defects of the real she found that her personality did not plead her cause so forcibly as she had anticipated the figurative phrase was true she was another woman than the one who had excited his desire i have thought over what you say she remarked to him moving her forefinger over the tablecloth her other hand which bore the ring that mocked them both supporting her forehead it is quite true all of it it must be you must go away from me but what can you do i can go home claire had not thought of that are you sure he inquired quite sure we ought to part and we may as well get it past and done you once said that i was apt to win men against their better judgment and if i am constantly before your eyes i may cause you to change your plans in opposition to your reason and wish and afterwards your repentance and my sorrow will be terrible and you would like to go home he asked i want to leave you and go home then it shall be so though she did not look up at him she started there was a difference between the proposition and the covenant which she had felt only too quickly i feared it would come to this she murmured her countenance meekly fixed i don't complain angel i 
I think it best. What you said has quite convinced me. Yes, though nobody else should reproach me if we should stay together, yet some when, years hence, you might get angry with me for any ordinary matter, and knowing what you do of my bygones, you yourself might be tempted to say words, and they might be overheard, perhaps by my own children. Oh, what only hurts me now would torture and kill me then. I will go to-morrow. And I shall not stay here. Though I didn't like to initiate, I have seen that it was advisable we should part, at least for a while, till I can better see the shape that things have taken and can write to you. Tess stole a glance at her husband. He was pale, even tremulous. But, as before, she was appalled by the determination revealed in the depths of this gentle being she had married, the will to subdue the grosser to the subtler emotion, the substance to the conception, the flesh to the spirit. Propensities, tendencies, habits were as dead leaves upon the tyrannous wind of his imaginative ascendancy. He may have observed her look, for he explained, I think of people more kindly when I am away from them, adding cynically, God knows, perhaps we shall shake down together some day for weariness. Thousands have done it. That day he began to pack up, and she went upstairs and began to pack also. Both knew that it was in their two minds that they might part the next morning forever, despite the gloss of assuaging conjectures thrown over their proceedings, because they were of the sort to whom any parting which has the air of finality is a torture. He knew, and she knew, that though the fascination which each had exercised over the other, on her part independently of accomplishments, would probably in the first days of their separation be even more potent than ever, time must attenuate that effect. The practical arguments against accepting her as a housemate might pronounce themselves more strongly in the boreal light of a remoter view. Moreover, when two people are once parted, have abandoned a common domicile and a common environment, new growths insensibly bud upward to fill each vacated place, unforeseen accidents hinder intentions, and old plans are forgotten. End of Part 1